Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be like darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Woe to you who are, who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calne and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says, no. Then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plough the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lod-Debar and say, Did we not take Karnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Libo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. This is God's word. Well, good evening. That's not the most cheerful of God's words, but uh, we'll see if we can make some sense of it uh, this evening. My name's Matt, if we've not met. 
Uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Christchurch. Let me lead us in prayer because we need some help. It's a slightly tricky little passage we're looking at tonight. Almighty God, our great Father, you are kind and therefore you give people what they need and we need encouragement uh, and we need to be shown how good you are and we need warnings and shown if we're in danger. And so, Father, as we come to consider one of the stark warnings of the scriptures, would we hear it rightly? Would those of us who need to hear it, hear it well? Uh, Would those of us who don't, in one sense, hear it as we need to for ourselves? But, Father, help us to take on board your warnings from your word, we pray. Amen. I was in Australia recently when Cyclone Debbie hit. That's not when you want to be on holiday, uh, when a cyclone hits you. But uh, it was in the worst of it, by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, some friends were on one of the little Whitsunday islands, which were pretty much in the, in the sort of main thoroughfare of this uh, cyclone as it came through, and we happened to see them a couple of weeks afterwards. Uh, and they said there they were on this beautiful white sandy island, uh, lounging around the pool with a mocktails or whatever it was at uh, one o'clock, maybe it was cocktails, who, I don't know, I don't want to judge them, the um, uh, one o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning, it was, it was in the morning, 11 o'clock, mocktails hopefully, 11 o'clock, but um, they were, you know, oh, blue sky, beautiful sunshine, and all of a sudden some of the hotel staff dished out these, uh, these letters uh, to everyone around the pool, and you know, oh, was this, you know, free sauna, what, what do you want? Uh, oh, the letter said, a cyclone is coming. The last boat off the island goes in 45 minutes. Pack your stuff and go. And uh, so this husband and wife, they said they looked at one another and went, No! Look at the sky! Look at it! Look at the sunshine! You're joking! We've got four days left of our holiday. We're not going. What is this? And of course, everyone else is sort of reading these things going, um, like the teacher from Charlie Brown. Uh, not actually saying any words. And uh, then uh, sort of, there's a queue of people at the front desk. No, no. No, look. Look at Tinternet. Look at it. Look at the weather patterns. Look at these warnings. It's coming. Oh, are we going to go? What do you think? Blue sky, sunshine, holiday paid for. Mm, I suppose we ought to. And they did, the family did, and they got to shore, and then they just drove and drove and drove and drove, just sort of just keeping ahead of this crazy storm. Uh, and so they managed to, uh, to escape it, and the worst of it. But they said there was a real moment of, no, you're joking, aren't you? One, doesn't look like it's true. Two, we really don't want this to be true. This will ruin our holiday, obviously, if you get a cyclone through the middle of it. But they did leave, and the island and the hotel battered. Hotel out of action still, months later. Because the hurricane, or the cyclone rather, destroyed it. Sometimes warnings come and we laugh them off, or we just don't want them to be true. Uh, Before 2007 and the financial crash, there weren't that many people saying, well, the global financial system is about to fall apart. There were some. But everyone sort of looked at them and went, you got a point, but no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. The worst won't really happen, partly because they probably didn't think it was true, and 
two, again, most people just didn't want it to be true. But it happened. Sometimes we feel we're just much happier living in denial than accepting a warning and a reality. And that's the setting here in the book of Amos. They're about to be destroyed. The people think they're okay. Uh, the, the nation of Israel back then had a booming economy, a, a dominant military. Churches are stuffed full on Sunday. Lots of people going uh, uh, and celebrating and, and worshipping at the festivals would come to that. But the Lord hated the corruption in the society. And in particular, he hated the, the oppression or the exploitation of the poor by the rich. And so Amos is a warning for nine chapters Israel, you are going to be invaded by your neighbor, Assyria, and you will be destroyed by them. And the people said, no, we don't want that to be true. It doesn't look likely that it's true. But Amos is seeking to persuade them. So really, chapters 1 and 2, he gave them the warning. Look, you are about to be destroyed. Chapters 3 to 6, which we're still in, uh, is Amos persuading them, no, look, you are not safe. And as these chapters have progressed, his language gets blunter and blunter. And so tonight, let's be honest, it's not the most cheerful. Here in this section, he pronounces two woes upon them. So chapter 5, verse 18, woe to you. Uh, and there he really attacks their religion. You think your religion protects you? It will not. Chapter 5, 18, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, there is their wealth. You think your wealth will protect you? No, it will not. Both end badly. So the first section, 527, you're going to exile. The, the second one on the money, chapter 6, verse 14, you're going to be invaded. You're not okay. You think your religion makes you okay with God? It doesn't. You, you, you think your wealth will insulate you from the future? It'll not. In fact, let me explain to you, says Amos, God hates both of those things. Two things then that God hates before we have a few questions about what he loves. It's more cheerful to end that way. Two things then that God hates. Self-absorbed religion and uncaring affluence. First then, he hates their self-absorbed religion. Chapter 5, 18 to verse 27. Two real chunks to this. First of all, in verses 18 to 20, they've misunderstood the day of the Lord, and then they've misunderstood the things that please him. But first, in these verses 18 to 20, they misunderstand the day of the Lord. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Now look, pause. The Bible is clear that history is linear. It's not cyclical and going round and round, although it may take place at some times in that. It's linear. It began when God orchestrated creation or created it. And it will end when Jesus Christ returns. It is linear. It is going somewhere. And the day when Christ returns, Jesus returns and says, enough, I will now judge the world, how everyone has lived, how everyone has behaved, the things they have done, the things they have failed to do. I will judge the world. That's called the day of the Lord. Put in capitals, the day, if you will, of the Lord. So, verse 18, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. 
Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Now, Israel thinks, well, brilliant, we, we, we worship God. So when God comes back, the day of the Lord will be good for us. We'll get all nice stuff, and people we don't like will get bad stuff. So the day of the Lord, we like that very much. And Amos says to them, you will not. It will not be a good day. Verse 19 it sort of has an element of farce about it. If you read it, it feels like the script something for, I don't know, a Ben Stiller comedy or something like that. It'll be though as a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. There's the bear. And then he runs away from the bear and enters into his house. Gets into the house and there's a snake. Bite. Oh dear. You're not safe, is his point. What will the day of the Lord be like for you, Israel? It'll be darkness. Verse 20, will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray of brightness. Darkness. Terrifying. Loneliness. Frightening. Look, this is centuries before even Jesus Christ appears on this planet. But I don't know what you make of the idea of a God who judges. If you ever find yourself thinking something like, well, if there's a God, I quite like the idea of a God of love. That's okay, a God of love. But a God who judges, not so keen on that. Don't like that idea. I just wonder, where do you get the idea from that God is loving? Even if you're not a Christian, I've got to tell you, that is from the Bible. Because there is no other worldview, religion, that would stress that. It's certainly not from uh, uh, Hinduism, where different gods are fighting one another, if you, if, you, if you believe that sort of creation story. It's not Buddhism, there is no God. It's not Islam. Nowhere in the Quran does it say that Allah is loving. But you come to the Bible, and from page one to the end, the stress is that God is love. He is love. Throughout eternity, Father, Son, Spirit, love. That is a key element of his self-description. And when God chooses to reveal himself most clearly and comes down as the man Jesus Christ and dies upon a cross, it is an act of love for this world that he made and the people in it. The idea that God is loving is a uniquely Christian one. And so while we prefer that to the idea that God judges, you can't really have one without the other. They're both biblical truths. And actually when we think about it, we know that an aspect of love is to judge the evil. You can't lovingly liberate a concentration camp unless you judge the captors. Those two do go hand in hand. You can't lovingly release Yazidi girls aged 16 who have been sex trafficked for the leaders of ISIS without judging their captors. You can't. Israel have misunderstood the day of the Lord. They thought it was all good for them. Not so, says the Lord. Not because of, because of how you behave. 
you get uh, more detail on that in verses 21 to 24. So here they've misunderstood what pleases God. Now, it's fair to say verses 21 to 24 are pretty strong. I hate, I despise, I will not accept, I will have no regard, I will not listen. Very strong, let me read them again. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Hmm. I think there's every reason you read these verses to believe that today in this city in this country, there would have been church services taking place that God says, I hate them. There would have been vicars breaking bread and God says, I hate you doing the way you do that. There would have been people singing and swaying along to songs and God saying, I hate the way you sing that. There have been people listening to perhaps impeccably crafted sermons and taking diligent notes and God saying, I hate that. They stink. Verse 21, I hate it. I despise your religious festivals. I despise your assemblies. They stink. Now do notice, God doesn't say he hates all their, all worship per se. So throughout the rest of the Bible, he's pretty keen on people gathering together and praising him and making self-sacrifices and offerings. But the key word here is, in this little section, is your. So verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Verse 23, away with the noise of your songs, the music of your harps. There is something about this culture, these Israelites, centuries ago, that God hated And verse 24 reveals what that is. I don't want any of that. I don't give a hoot about that. I hate the way you're doing that. What I want, verse 24, is justice. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. And if you've been here over the last few weeks, here's the recurrent attack of Amos. You think you're okay, but you just don't care about justice. You allow injustice to take place in your society, in the courts. You don't care about right relationships between people. It's a disgrace. Justice is not meant to be something you turn your mind to for one hour a week. It's continuous. So the issue is, do you see the problem? For for these people, Israel then, their church worship was a pastime. It was escapist entertainment. You could imagine the people saying, oh, Amos, be quiet. You should be happy, Amos. Look, look, the churches are full, Amos, with people. Aren't you happy that the churches are full? And he could easily turn around and say, do you know what? Sometimes a packed church can be a sign of spiritual decay if the people are just doing it for themselves. If it's all about them. It's I go along because it makes me feel good. I go along Well, because I feel a bit virtuous afterwards, rather than an expression of, well, their genuine response to the Lord. 
a life, not just one hour a week, but a life that is concerned with walking in God's ways, following him, living a life of righteousness, being concerned with justice. And if you don't walk in his ways, any religious, religious gathering is just empty emotion. Verses 25 to 27 are a little bit tricky, but you get the point. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness? People have said, is that all you did? No, 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 not back then. But nowadays you worship other gods, verse 26. Verse 27 gives you the, the point. I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord. You think your religious habits are good. You think your religious habits please me. No, no. If they're a pastime for you, I hate your religion. So God hates their self-absorbed religion, is the first thing. Secondly, he hates their uncaring affluence. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. So Amos here shifts from an attack upon religion of the culture as a whole to uh, what are those who are the wealthiest, Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, those who feel secure on Mount Samaria, or you notable men of the foremost nation. It's literally you who are firsts of the foremost nation. So he's particularly attacking the elite, if you will. And not just because they're wealthy. God has no problem with people having wealth. It's how they use it. And the issue here is, you see verse 6, they do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. That is the nation of Israel, another name for Joseph, Israel. You're fine if you've got money. You're wealthy and you don't care about the injustice in society. Or verse 12, end of verse 12, you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You just don't care about the society around you because you live in a gilded world which is insulated from it. Now look, that's been true of elites throughout history. You know, from the classic Marie Antoinette, they've got no bread. No bread, let them eat brioche or cake or whatever it was she's meant to have said. Or, or Joseph Stalin in, in, in classless Russia, living in opulence, uh, living in luxury while hundreds of thousands of peasants starved to death. I mean, that's true throughout history. It may be completely unfair, but a few years ago, David Cameron castigated for not knowing the price of a pint of milk because it made him look out of touch. Uh, it is easy to sort of caricature him as the posh, posh man who's out of touch with the person down here. Whether well, that's fair or not, I have no idea. What's a pint of milk cost? You know, I don't know. Four for a quid, and that's what I do at my local shop. What does that mean? I don't know what a pint is. Um, but, um, you know, there have been these sort of elites throughout history. These days, the elites, the establishment, I think that's just anyone you dislike. Uh, that just tends to be how it gets used. But back here then, it is those who are first in society. So verses two and three, I guess the point is they're, they're criticized for making comparisons. The notable men are saying to, uh, to the citizens of, of Israel, look, go to Kalna and look at it, go from there to Great Hamath, then you go down to Gath and Philistia, all these countries that, 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 that were nearby, their neighbors. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? It's as if he's sort of saying, hey, look in the UK, stop your moaning. Uh, Go to France and see what they deal with. 
you know, go to Belgium, look at the, the sort of idleness there. You know, it's that sort of, that, uh, that's the sort of comment that the elites, the firsts, the foremost men are making. Don't just make comparisons, says Amos. Look at your own nation. Or, or verses four and five, it's their uncaring wealth, I guess, that, guess, that gets criticized here. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You, you dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. Verse 6, you drink wine by the bowlful. Not enough to have a, a glass or even a goblet or even a good old Viking horn. They've got, you know, it's bowls. You know, bowls. You know what a bowl is. I don't know why I'm doing this. You know what a bowl looks like. Mm, getting the wine down them. And the most expensive um, are the finest of lotions. I don't know what that is. Um, lotions are not my thing. If I'm honest with you, I did wander this week into uh, Selfridges. I saw a bottle of Roja, Roja, I don't know, Parfum. It was £12,500 for 50 millilitres. That seemed quite expensive to me. More expensive than a can of whatever, Lynx. The, um, uh, that's expensive. Yeah, yeah, that's just frittering money away. Drinking bowls of wine and wasting money on ridiculous expenses. And again, the issue is, verse six, you do not grieve over the nation, the injustice, the lack of righteousness. You just hide away in first class in your bubble and don't care about anyone else. Verse eight, I guess, is a summary of the issue. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I'll deliver up the city and everything in it. The wealthy, they just think they're safe. That their affluence, their gated houses with their CCTV, their fortresses, they'll be safe. They will not. So verses nine to 11, I guess the point there is this judgment, this invasion is inevitable. Verse 11, God has given the command. He'll smash the great house to pieces, the small house into pieces. Look, if, if your country gets invaded, it doesn't matter if you live in a house worth 10 million or, or you're renting a one-room flat. You've been invaded, he says. Then back to these rhetorical questions that he loves in this book. Verse 12, do horses run on the rocky crags? No. You, you don't try and take a horse galloping over a rocky coastline. They like grass. And fall in the sea. Uh, does one plough the sea with oxen? No. You don't hitch up your ox to a plough and go swimming with them. That's a waste of time. You don't do that. But you've turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You, bitterness, you think you'll get away with that? No, it's as ridiculous as trying to plough the sea. Oh, but they say, uh, verse 13, but, but look at our conquests. We, we've conquered these places, Lodavar, and, and didn't we take Karen, look by our own strength? We've had these military victories. Well, good for you. They'll not last. Verse 14, the Lord God Almighty declares, I'll stir up a nation against you, Israel, and oppress you all the way. Look, you are about to be invaded. It's going to happen. So What? Well, I guess here's a word primarily for all those who exercise power in this world. You will be held to account by the Lord. And your wealth can't protect you from it. Phil 
showed me an article the other day, made me smile. It's a number of tech billionaires, particularly from California. They've bought estates on the South Island in New Zealand, the sort of where they filmed Lord of the Rings, uh, that sort of beautiful part, and they've been buying up acres and acres. The, the logic being, look, if there's going to be a thermonuclear war, uh, now Trump's in power, uh, etc. now the world's a bit more unstable, and uh, Kim Jong-un's got, you know, let's go to New Zealand. Because if miles away from anywhere and... Well, who cares about New Zealand? No one's going to bomb New Zealand. It's just sort of miles away from anywhere. We'll be safe there. Or apparently the logic is, now that there's global inequality and that's getting worse and worse and worse, if there's rioting and people really dislike the fact that we're gazillionaires, well, let's have somewhere we can helicopter to where we're safe. You think, really, that your money can buy you that affluence? Maybe if you're worried about inequalities, you could do something about that. You could maybe give some of your money away. That would be a start, perhaps. But there are people, verse 6, who don't grieve over the ruin of their nations. Verse 12, we don't care that justice has been turned into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. So I guess here's a word primarily for those who exercise power in the world. must also be a word for those who exercise power in a church, in a denomination, perhaps more acutely, you'll be held to account. God hates self-absorbed religion and he hates uncaring affluence. That's all cheerful stuff. Three questions. Three questions as uh, we try and apply it to you and to me. Question one, what does your religion look like? How would you feel tonight if someone did wander into church and stood up at the front and declared, everything you've done this evening, God has hated? I have to say, I'd be a bit embarrassed, as I'm the minister, so that would be a bit awkward for me. Uh, But uh, that would be slightly shocking, wouldn't it, if someone came in and said that? Amos says, look, what you do on a Sunday, great. it cannot be escapist entertainment. It cannot just be for you. It must be part of a life that is concerned with walking in God's ways, a life of righteousness and that pursues justice. It has to affect how you relate to God and how you relate to others. Or perhaps as the New Testament would put it, let me just give you a comparison. As James would put it in his letter in the New Testament, James chapter one puts it uh, uh, these Words. Have we got them? James 1. There we go. James 1, verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Their religion's worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's got to affect how you live yourself how you relate to others, as well as how you relate to the Lord. It's got to. Otherwise, your religion is worthless. Very encouraging to read. I don't know if you've read them yet. uh, You shouldn't have done, because you've been concentrating on church service. But the testimonies, do take them away and uh, read them. Very encouraging. Change lives. What does your religion look like? It cannot just be what we do on a Sunday. Second question, what makes you feel secure? 
I enjoyed reading uh, recently about Roman Abramovich's yacht. Actually, he's got a number of yachts, as you would do if you're worth whatever it is, nine billion pounds or, or roughly that sort of uh, sum of money. But uh, the one which, when it was built, was the largest in the world, the Eclipse. Um, with all sorts of, you know, only, only 40 bedrooms, but they're all, you know, 24 bedrooms, utter luxury. Everyone's got a cinema in it. Uh, two swimming pools, one of them turns into a dance floor, which is useful, um, I, I guess. Uh, and also, you know, everything, luxury, luxury, luxury. luxury. But I was interested in the, uh, the security arrangements. Uh, upon this yacht, it costs 724 million if you want one. Uh, upon this yacht, it had a radar-guided missile defense system. Sounds pretty cool. Um, but if somehow a missile got through, the hull and the windows are capable of withstanding a missile attack. That's pretty impressive. And if everything goes wrong, it does have a mini-submarine for emergencies to escape. It sounds magnificently bombed, doesn't it? He has a private army, does Roman, a private army of 40, 40 SAS soldiers who accompany him everywhere at the cost of £1.2 million a year just to employ these guys. Presumably, he's a bit nervous that he and his family might be kidnapped. That's, I guess, from time to time it goes through his head. Have I got enough security? Is my boat secure enough? Is the hull thick enough? Um, have I got enough anti-defense systems? Have I got enough soldiers around me? And if you're wealthy, you can buy quite a lot. The day he took delivery of the eclipse, he wasn't there, uh, but he was delivered to, you know, took possession of it. He was uh, climbing. He was climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And he had a heart attack that day and had to be rushed to hospital. And he survived. But it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Are you safe? Okay, what about us mere mortals who might think that the way Roman Abramovich spends his money is a bit odd? Unless we're a Chelsea fan, we may cut him some slack. But um, you might think he's a bit odd. What about us mere mortals do you ever find yourself thinking, I will be secure if I have a bit more money in the bank? If I had, I don't know what it might be, uh, one month's salary as savings in the bank, then I'd feel better. If I had one year's salary savings in the bank, then I'd feel better. If I had uh, a decent pension plan in the bank, then I'd feel better. Or, that's a long, long way away, I've got no money, but at least I've got the bank of mum and dad, which makes me feel better. Those things make you secure? Or at work, have I got enough sufficient security? Have I got enough contacts? Have I got enough goodwill? Have I got enough people who back me in the office? Am I safe? Am I safe? I'm a student. Have I got enough contacts to get a decent internship? Am I safe? Now, Amos would say there's one place of safety, and that's in the Lord. And if you think you're safe elsewhere, you're fooling yourself. What does your religion look like, too? What makes you feel secure? Third and last, what will the day of the Lord look like for you? Chapter 5, verse 18. The nation of Israel thought, great. At the end of history, we're going to be rewarded because we worship the Lord, and yet they were tragically wrong. Now, look, on the assumption that there is a God who judges at the end of history, will you be okay? And the Bible says very clearly, left to our own devices, the answer is no. We are complacent to the point of negligence if we think that a God who judges won't care about our 
our self-absorption, our, our willingness to accumulate stuff and, and take stuff of his world and just ignore him. No, he won't. But in his kindness, God has set two days of the Lord in history. The first was the day that Jesus died. Because the God who judges evil loves his creation and loves to show grace to people. Chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Now that was a surprise to them back then. But when Jesus dies upon the cross, at midday, a day of light became a day of darkness. As darkness covered the sky for three hours. Well, that's not right. That's surprising. And the one man who had lived a perfect life was punished by God. What should have been a day of light for him was a day of darkness for him. And the wonderful message now is that if you trust that Jesus endured the terror of darkness, you can look forward to a future of light with him forever. See, God hates self-absorbed religion if you do it for you. If you do it because I think I will make God happy with my religion, he hates that. He hates uncaring affluence. But he does love his son, Jesus Christ. And God the Father loves this world so much that he was willing to send his son to die in the place of people like you and me who don't live perfect lives. And so now if you know that, if you know that Jesus Christ has endured darkness for you, then you will have a religion that lives for him. And you'll find your security in him. God hates self-absorbed religion. He hates uncaring affluence, but he loves his son and he loves this world so much to send his son to die for you. And that's the only way to be safe upon the day of the Lord. You trust that God's judgment fell upon him. So it's nothing you'll ever face yourself. God loves that. He loves it when people trust in him through his son. Let's pray together. Our Father, here is a strong warning. And we pray that we won't hear this, read this and think, no, all is fine, all is well. I really don't want this to be true. But we take it seriously. As some have testified this evening, they have discovered that this is true. That you don't, you're not indifferent to self-absorbed religion or uncaring affluence. You care deeply about that. You hate these things. That one day there is a day of judgment, the day of the Lord. But that you love your world. And so you sent the son that you love 
to die for people in this world. Father, would we recognize that, trust in him, and therefore, therefore find our security in you and live our lives for you so that our religion, if we can put it in those terms, so that our faith in you lived out is utterly pleasing. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.